Happy Sabbath. We are delighted that once again you have decided to partner with us in this enterprise where we dig into Scripture in order to decide and define what's God, what God's covenant is for us in this time and in this place. I'm excited to begin this journey with you on this, the second to last Sabbath in this quarter. But before we do that, I'd like to invite you, as we always do, to join with me in prayer. Loving Lord, we would ask that you today manifest yourself in our midst. And as you do it, and as we think and we ponder upon the words that Scripture has, as we wrestle with the concepts of covenants and the implication of said concepts for our lives today, we would simply ask, won't you partner with us? Won't you huddle together with us? Won't you come down and allow our hearts and minds to be filled with the wisdom that comes from above? For we pray in your name. Amen. Well, if you're part of this community, that is to say, if you're part of the Loma Linda community, this last weekend was a very hectic weekend. And it was hectic because, as a, most any other university campus, it's time for commencement exercises. Now, my family had three graduations. Three different journeys came to an end. Three different career goals were met. We gathered in excitement and anticipation to celebrate our family members who were now getting ready to delve into life, a new kind of life, with new obstacles and new challenges. And as we did, I had an opportunity to look at how my family intersects with each other, how they interact. Now, they came from all over the country. They came from the East Coast and the West Coast, from the Northeast and from the Pacific Northwest. They came from the South, and they even came from out of the country. And as we gathered, we began to speak, to speak in a different language, to speak about stories that we all remember a little differently, even if they speak to our collective history. Relationships that had been rough were tried, we tried to smooth those over, and we remembered fights that we had had before. Those awkward exchanges that we'd rather forget came back flooding to the surface, and as we tried to interact, my eldest looked, as he always does. He stood at the corner of the room, listening, listening to the noise, that cacophony of sounds emanating from our mouths to create conversations. He listened intently. And as he began to try to unravel the fights and the history, as he began to try and understand the complicated family tree, the marriages and divorces, the breakups and the makeups, the families that were related by blood and others that were related through marriage. As he did that, he looked at me. And that sweet innocence on his face, blank stare in his eyes, he said, Daddy, I've got a headache. And I asked him immediately what it was, if it was the sun or the anticipation of the moment. Maybe it was the fact that he had eaten too much sugar. 
Instead of that, he said, Daddy, I have a headache because our family is complicated. And that's true. Our family, like all of your families, are complicated. Complications that come from different ways of understanding faith and politics, policy, different ways of looking at life, different ways of deciding to live that life, to parent our children, or to engage in relationships with our spouses. To be sure, these different ways create conflict. And the conflict creates complication, but the complication also provides us a marvelous opportunity to discern and develop a new type of language. And in that way, churches are much like families, aren't they? They debate on uh, over all sorts of things, from the color of the carpet to the painting on the walls to the order of the liturgy to issues about creedal certainty and theological orthodoxy. Adventism has done this for over 160 years, and in that long journey, we too have developed a language. We talk about the spirit of prophecy and the sanctuary doctrine, the Sabbath. We talk about holism and the idea of the health message. We talk about in-gathering, in-camp meeting, haystacks, and the heritage singers. We've developed our own language that is very personal. It's a language that is forged out of conflict, but even as we think about that conflict, we recognize that both the language and the history of trauma and triumph that defines us has gifted us with an identity. And in that way, we're not much different from the early church. That church that was trying to make a way to open a path in the light of the wondrous reality of the resurrection. They gathered together. And they had not many things in common, different languages, different ideologies, different ways of understanding scripture, even different interpretations of what the message of the Messiah was. But as they came together and they thought about trauma, as they pondered the reality of the resurrection, they decided. They decided that the one thing that would coalesce their corporate and communal identity was circumcision. Circumcision that had been an outward sign of an inward covenant. Circumcision that was the prime example of how God decided to cut a covenant with Abraham. Circumcision was the one thing that separated them. In a cultural, religious, and societal milieu defined by Roman cosmopolitan policies, this is what they held on to. And that's why, dear friend, the, the first great debate in the early church was on the issue of circumcision. The circumcision party Christian Jews from Jerusalem insisted that in order for Gentiles to be accepted into the fold, they needed to be circumcised. After all, this was the only way in which their position and their status as covenant people could be guaranteed. Paul, on the other side, understood that circumcision was merely an outward sign of an inward faith. That what mattered wasn't what you did with your body, but rather where you lived in your heart. And so as the debate raged on, Paul decides to sit at a desk and dictate a note 
His scribe puts pen to paper as he begins to reflect. Reflect on all the issues of theology that craft Christian identity. We call this magnum opus of Paul's, the epistle to the Romans. And I'd like to point you to the that book as we begin to talk about circumcision and the covenant, works and grace. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open it with me to Romans chapter 6. Notice what Paul says in verse 14 of that chapter. He says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. And it is at this moment that an interesting dichotomy begins to form in Paul's mind. It is the, that difference that exists between the law and grace, between sin and salvation, between faith and works. Now, let me be clear before we move on. In nowhere in the Pauline writings will you find the apostle to the Gentiles condemning works. What Paul wants us to be clear about, though, is that works in no way can supplant the position that Christ has as the paramount center for the Christian experience. And so Paul will say, you are now free. He understands that the purpose of the law was to simply encase the covenant in a way in which we as human beings could understand it in a proper context. But now, now that we have been gifted the reality of Jesus, Paul says, you live under something different. The Jesus act has been so radical that it has shaken the very foundation of your epistemological or your knowledge basis. And that is why he can continue in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, by saying, therefore, there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ gives you freedom. And freedom is at the center of the message that Paul will proclaim throughout his epistles. Now, as we've introduced this concept, I'd invite you now to ponder, to ponder upon the words that Paul will write to a church that is grappling with identity and that is trying to define itself in terms of the covenant and circumcision. We're going to linger just a bit on the fourth chapter of the Epistle to the Romans. We're going to read verses 1 through 8, and what we'll do on this morning is we'll simply read it together, and then I'd like to point out a few things that you ought to keep in mind. Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh discovered in this matter, If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts, God who justifies the ungodly, their faith, is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from the works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin 
the Lord will never count against them. Now, first and foremost, I'd like you to pause on how Paul opens this particular chapter. He talks about Abraham, and he talks about the flesh and the idea of justification. Now, we've spoken many times before about the reality that justification is, at least as Paul understands it, a legal term. It has to do with the position that you hold before a court. And in this particular proceeding, Paul says that now you can approach the judge with boldness because your status has changed. At the heart of the question, though, is what does this change represent? And how are we, as changed human beings, to live it out? Well, Paul notes that Abraham was justified, and he was justified before he was circumcised and before there was any law. And notice that the rhetorical argument that Paul is attempting to make, and that is the linchpin of his theology throughout the epistle to the Romans, is this. The covenant precedes circumcision, and the covenant precedes the law, because the covenant is about God's faithful justification. Origen, the old church father, probably puts it best when he writes that when it comes to faith, faith is contingent on the grace of the one who justifies. In other words, Abraham being justified through faith is justified because he serves a graceful God. On the other hand, Origen will, will say, that when it comes to works, the works are contingent on the justice of he who rewards them. And in Paul's mind, there is nothing that we can do that is a ever going to balance the sheet. We are in a constant imbalance. We are under the crushing debt of sin. And so justice, if we look at it through works, can never provide justification. It can only bring condemnation. To put it in a way that my kids would understand, let me tell you a simple story. Now, Micah, Micah receives an allowance of $10. This allowance is contingent on him completing a series of chores that range from taking his dog out on walks to making his bed to, well, he's in that age now, making sure that he takes a shower every day. And if he completes all of his tasks, he gets his reward. But my son has expensive tastes. He loves the latest toy and the greatest video game. And so on more than one occasion, he will drag us to the store and tell both his mom and I, Dad, Mom, can I buy this particular toy? Could we purchase this video game? And when I get my allowance, I will repay you. Well, we've done that uh, several times, and only to realize that my son now is running a debit that cannot be paid even if he completes all of his chores for the next few months. And so we have a decision to make. We can withhold his payment or we can choose to wipe the slate clean and start anew. Justice would demand that we collect every single dime 
He owes us. But grace would push us to wipe the slate clean. Now, I'm not saying that you ought to buy your children everything, but I think it's a good analogy of what God does for us and to us. You see, the covenant is merely a reminder that God's justification stems from his gracefulness and that his gracefulness allows us the opportunity of starting anew. And so we can say with confidence and boldness, as Paul does in the eighth chapter, there is no condemnation for us, for we are in Christ Jesus. But because the condemnation comes devoid of any act that we can perform, there is nothing to boast about. The law is there simply as a protective device to make sure that we stay in tune with, with God's purpose for our life. But our status, our assurance of salvation, our capacity to boast and sing how great thou art, that comes from Christ and from Christ alone. Notice what Paul will say in the fourth chapter, in the, the fourth verse. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. In other words, if we stop trying to earn our way into heaven and trust our way into heaven, then we stop focusing on ourselves and begin focusing on others. And as we've said before, others and the other is the prime purpose of the Abrahamic covenant. Do you remember we've read it before? The promise that God makes to Abraham is in order for Abraham to become a blessing to all nations. And here Paul is clear. The way in which you become a blessing to others is by, stop, by stopping and focusing on the people that live outside of your circle rather than on yourself. And how can you do that? Well, you do that when you stop trying to earn your way into heaven. One more story probably will, will elucidate this point. And when I was in college, I had received a scholarship offer from a well-known program to play soccer in a school in Texas. Now, my parents were convinced that I needed to pursue an Adventist education. And so we chose La Sierra because it was the only program that offered scholarships in that particular sport. I arrived early in the summer to prepare for training camp. And throughout the sweltering heat of these California summers, we practiced. It didn't take us long to figure out that our team was bereft of talent, devoid of any capacity to actually compete in our particular division and conference. But nonetheless, we worked and worked and worked. As the, game, as the first game opened, I jumped onto that pitch, convinced that if I tried hard enough, I could pull my team together for victory. Now, we were summarily defeated 6-0 on our first match. And thus, a litany of losses began to follow until one evening the coach said, I know you don't want to be here. I know you had designs on playing somewhere else with a different type of talent in a different kind of league. 
But maybe if you learn to have fun, if you enjoy the moment, if you experience the pitch and your team mix, maybe, maybe you can learn something this year. I'm sad to say that we didn't win much throughout my collegiate career. But as I think about all those games, all those losses, all the laughter and the halftime speeches, it's my fondest memory of ever stepping on a pitch. Not because I won, but because I stopped trying to win and began trusting that the game itself and the camaraderie of my teammates was the final and ultimate purpose. And perhaps this is what Paul wants us to understand. Perhaps he is trying to push us to the realization that the covenant, when understood properly, focuses us to outward mission, to outward expressions of faith. To be sure, works are important, but they're not important in the sense that we used to think they were. Namely, they're not important in my quest to achieve salvation, but they become of paramount importance when they are placed against the desperate need that the world has to hear the message of a God who says, I offer you freedom from guilt, sin, shame, and condemnation. And so maybe today, maybe today you are hoping, desperately hoping to find your covenant call to find a place in this covenant of faith, to begin to live out the new status that God has conferred upon you. Maybe you want to redefine your identity, not in terms of circumcision or spirit of prophecy or state of the dead. Maybe you're trying to redefine your life in the light of the Son who makes all things possible. If that is you, then let me tell you, Works matter. Works matter because they allow us to coalesce our passion with the hunger that exists in the world. And at that juncture, at the place where your passion coalesces with the hunger that is experienced in the world, oh, well, in that place, in that place you find covenant, covenant forged in faith. Stu, let's talk about the covenant, my dear friend. Let's talk about the covenant as we understand it and you as we understand it, not in terms of what we do, but in terms of what Christ has done for us. Yeah, I think this is, is such an important basic principle. And I, I realize when we talk about covenant, it sounds very theological and, and we don't like make a covenant with each other. You know, I promise, I covenant with you, Miguel, that I'm not going to do X, Y, and Z. We don't use that language. But I like where you started with, you started with, you know, families are complicated. And our first illustration is Abraham in terms of biblical mm -hmm. character. There's no question you follow his lineage. There's a lot of complication <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and so diving right into that, I, I love the the language which, where it says it was accredited to him, mm -hmm. or what's the word? I, I think Credit. it's it was credited to him. Why do you think that specific word is used or, or kind of that idea is used mm. when we're talking about a covenant? Yeah, Stu, that's a great question. Well, see, we've talked about this, I think, before in the language of the ancient Near East. These ideas of covenant were all about the balance in the relationship. 
So usually, a stronger king or a stronger city-state or even a stronger empire would come and say, I want to make a covenant with you, the weaker nation. And the whole purpose was that as a stronger nation, I could demand tribute from you. And that tribute then would be credited to your account in order to ensure that I would continue conferring my blessings and my protection. What I find so wonderful is that in this case, that whole dynamic is flipped upside down. So God gives his protection to Abraham even before Abraham does anything. And so it is, I think, in that sense, in the sense that God simply says, Abraham, leave your father's house and go to the land I will show you. And Abraham, and Abraham simply does this. That puts that uh, credit, as it were, in his religious bank account to continue propelling God to do something. And so what I find so marvelous is that because of Jesus, we have this enormous grace credit in our bank account where the question that we need to begin to ask ourselves isn't, what do I need to do in order for God to accept me? But rather, how can I respond responsibly to God already accepting me. And what does that mean as I interact and live life with others? It's interesting, while you were talking there, I was thinking, kind of using another analogy, it's almost like when we're born into this world and start living our lives here, to use the bank account metaphor, it's like we're overdrawn. Mm -hmm. And then God is basically coming to us and saying, listen, um, I've already made a deposit. And so a lot of it, it our work is, is the process of discovering mm -hmm. the promise and how real mm. the promise actually is. Because one of the things that I think we get so stuck on uh, this idea that am I doing something wrong so I'm losing the deposit. Mm. And so what's actually going on in our head is that if I do something wrong, then God withdraws the mm -hmm. money. And then when I agree to do it, then he puts it back. And the fact that Abraham was credited it, because what I hear people talk about Abraham's life, you know, there's certain evidence, things he did in his story that were not godlike right. or righteous. Right. And so I find it fascinating that it's credited to him because I think that starts, and I'd like you to comment about this, it starts moving away from the behavior mm. being the priority. Yeah, yeah. Um, Stu, that is such a powerful analogy with the bank account and the deposit that you just made. So think about it. We talked about families being complicated. Well, my family, as I, as I said before, is pretty complicated. I know yours is too, but we pale in comparison to Abraham. Right. And yet Abraham is called the father of the faith. And so the question then becomes, well, how is that possible? If it seems like God was fighting him every step of the way. And I think that's where your analogy is so helpful. So think about it. My mom, a few years ago, this is before I was born, was working early on emergency department as a, as a nurse. And she would deposit faithfully her paycheck in the bank. And one day she wakes up and there's $10,000 extra in the bank. And at that point, she has three decisions to make. One, she can withdraw all the money, and she doesn't do that because she's scared. She's scared that the bank is then going to hold her responsible for what she's done with the money. 
And that happens with us too. We receive these, this good news that is the gospel, and our first reaction is to say, hmm, should I withdraw it and then share it with others? And then we begin to tremble because we say, well, once I accept it, once I start living out this life, then I'm responsible for my, for my decisions and for my behaviors. And so we kind of live our lives with one foot in, one foot out, not fully committed. So that's option number one. Then my mom has option number two, and that is to call the bank and to say, hey, um, there's this extra money in my account. Well, she doesn't want to do that either because if she does, then that money is going to be withdrawn. And when it comes to God, we do this all the time. God gives us this promise. He says, hey, you're justified by faith. It's going to be credited to you. And we have this fear of calling out God because we feel that if we really put God to the test, if we we really say to God, hey, you need to live up to your promises, we're going to find that the promises are a sham. And in Abraham's case, isn't that what Hagar is all about? God says, I'm going to give you this. And Abraham says, well, let me try to figure out another one. Also, the thing with the Pharaoh thing that this is my sister, kind of technically, but you know, he does that twice, right. twice, <laughs> yeah. and so it's this it's this inability to simply take God at His word, which leads us then to option number three, and option number three is simply is simply going to be, I am going to go out in faith, and instead of spending the money on myself, I'm going to share it with others. I wish my mom would have chosen that option because that would have been sharing it with her family and with her kids. But um, that's option number three when it comes to the gospel. Take the money out and say, okay, I'm going to invest in people. And if the balance ever comes due, I'm going to trust in people to actually put some money into the communal bank. That's, I think, what God is trying to have us do. He's trying to say, look, here are my promises. Here's your bank account. By the way, it's never going to be empty. I am consistently going to be depositing in there. But I deposit in there in order for you to withdraw that money and go invest in others. And I think that's the nuance that we miss a lot of the times. When we have this conversation of grace versus works, we think of them as two separate things. The grace is God depositing the bank account. We didn't work for it. So that's that's God's grace. The work piece is us trusting God enough to then withdraw that and invest that in the marketplace of life. And so it's not just my conversion through faith and grace, but it's also my commitment to share with others. And I think if we understand how that works, uh, this dichotomy that we've created between faith and uh, grace and, and works and the law would disappear. It was interesting while you were talking. I just thought of something. It's like God has deposited money, and we act almost like um, in, in our real world. You know, it's like we have to constantly check our checking accounts. Like I don't want to be overdrawn, or do I have enough, or whatever. And so with God, it, it's almost like subconsciously or even consciously, we're afraid we're going to mm-hmm. be overdrawn. Mm-hmm. Whereas God is basically saying. It's limitless. I'm going to keep depositing, but I'm not going to, it's not helpful to you to deposit if you're not going to share it. Mm. And I was just talking about that with my team this morning, this idea of um, kind of how God views us when, you know, this withdrawal, if like, if we do something wrong, he's going to withdraw it, or we're so focused 
on the behavior, which I think like you were saying towards the end of your presentation there, it it gets where it's all about us, mm-hmm. even when we're striving to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And what God is trying to say is, yes, you need to obey. But uh, I was describing this morning with the team, it's like Ellen White within the Adventist community, you know, that that's that's been a great place of encouragement, but it's also been a great source of people really making the burden of God and everything harsh. Well, one of the, and, and a lot of that deals with the obedience conversation. And what I have found over the last couple of years, especially almost every time she talks about obedience, it's obedience out of love. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about deposit, our response is one of gratefulness. Mm not obligation. That's right. And I think when we look at Abraham, the behavior is important because he certainly had consequences mm-hmm. to the behavior. And, and I think this is where we get into trouble. Some people feel like when we talk about the emphasis wasn't on the behavior, then we're kind of giving license. Right. There is consequences to sin. Even if you don't even believe in God, <laughs> it has consequences. So that's just a given. And we owe God whether we want to acknowledge it or not. That's just the way it is. But I love this idea that where you said, you know, he's made the covenant before anything has happened. Um, How do you think that kind of idea that God has made a promise with us before we do anything, how that really should transform how we connect with God? Oh, that is such a good question. Let's let's continue the conversation on economics. I to to explain this answer. I used to spend money very freely, kind of like my son. That's where he got it from. Um, so I would get a an allowance on Sunday, and by Monday morning, that allowance was spent. And this followed me um, through junior high. It followed me uh, to uh, living in boarding school. And then finally, when I turned 16, I was home for the summer from boarding school. And my parents, uh, before I left, uh, always used to celebrate my birthday because by the time my birthday came around, I was already out at boarding school. And so they gave me for this particular birthday a wanted list. And so it was kind of a not so subtle invitation for me to go find a job. And I went and found a job. And I remember it was it was a job working at a fast food restaurant and it was very hard and it was long hours and it was difficult and messy and sweaty. And if you know me out there, you know I don't like messes or sweat, so you can imagine me there. Um, but Stu, I remember when we when I got that first paycheck, that money that I had actually earned through the sweat of my brow, I didn't want to spend it on anything. I just wanted to hold it and say, this is mine and I'm not sharing it. I'm not buying anything for anyone. This is my money. And I think that's why God is so clear when it comes to Abraham and Paul saying, you didn't earn it. Because when we actually earn something, we're very much less likely to go out and share it with others. It belongs to us. It's mine. But when we're given something, when we don't know the value of something, we're much more free to go out and share it. 
And so I think that's what that's why God wants to make it so clear to us that when it comes to grace and salvation, we didn't earn it. Now we do earn the consequences of sin, and that's why sin ought to be this great teacher of what not to do and how to correct behavior. But when it comes to grace, to the grace that God gives, that didn't cost you anything. So you are under no obligation to hoard it. And I think that ought to change the relationship we have with God because we ought to begin to live and worship a God of abundance. And we don't do that that well. Every time we we talk about God, it seems like we believe in the God of commodities. And by that, I mean, if you talk to any economist, they'll tell you that commodities are things that ultimately run out in the market. And so that's why you need to compete. Uh, You compete to uh, to have acquisition over more commodities because these are finite goods. Grace isn't a finite good. God God is a God of abundance. And so the way in which we relate to that God ought to change in how we ask things from that God. Because we think that God has a little bit uh, and, and these commodities are something that we need to compete to acquiesce, our prayers are really meh. <laughs> and God is telling us, I want you to pray bold prayers. Because grace, faith, mercy, compassion, when it comes to me, those are endless. It's interesting, you know, know, because another problem we have in Christianity is some of these ideas about prayer and we don't ask God enough. But when you think about a lot of those, it's still about us. Mm -hmm. It's like, if you pray to God, you'll get blessings, Mm. you'll have abundance and all this Mm. kind of stuff. And the abundance God is talking about is abundance that actually will mean something Mm -hmm. to us abundance that we we can share. Mm. Now, another thing that I, I liked um, that you you, noted, you referenced toward the end is, is how trust, once you learn to trust, your faith becomes more fun. Now, we don't often associate our spiritual journey with fun, but I think this is a really important concept because I've often thought about this. The sooner we can just reach a point where we trust God, period. Think of how much stress Mm. goes away. Oh, yes. And then when you add to that, where um, when you combine that trust, because when we're talking about the grace and works, one of the dilemmas is I find this so fascinating, and I'm talking to myself now, why is it we're so fascinated about re-engaging and earning it somehow? Mm-hmm. Why is it so difficult for us to say, you know, I got to put this one on God. He's made the deposit. Now I'm going to go share it. Why do we kind of want to keep stepping in and oh, I'll do that part or I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll do this? I never quite understood that. Um, and I still sometimes don't understand that with myself. But I, I go back to this kind of grace and works thing. Um in a relationship, a marriage relationship, we've talked about this many times. You know, we don't walk around with rules, or at least I can't imagine any healthy relationship. You know, walk around and say, okay, Miguel or my <laughs> wife, Linda, here's the rules. Up, yeah. you didn't follow number three over yeah. here. 
Uh, see how long that relationship will last. Not long, not long. <laughs> not if you know my Linda. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and uh, that's something we have in common, both in name and uh, personality. <laughs> and personalities. Yeah. Uh, which is a good thing. Um, but nevertheless, works are extremely import important to experience the love. Mm -hmm. It's not so much to earn the love, mm -hmm. But I, I found that to be very helpful um, in in terms of this idea of trusting in God and the grace kind of works combination. Um, how do you think we could do a better job? And I'm, I'm kind of talking to myself to, to reach that point of believing enough in the gift that it reaches a point that we're actually grateful for. Mm. So... It looks like today we're using a lot of stories and a lot of analogies to explain this. Uh, Stu, you and I are both Southern California uh, raised uh, people. And so a long time ago, one of the big things that, that we used to do is we used to go to this water park, particularly on hot summer days like, like the one this Sabbath. And so we would go to San Dimas to Raging Waters. Now, that was before I found out that uh, the water there is not the cleanest, and so we <laughs> haven't gone there since I've received that, that new knowledge. But nonetheless, um, I, I can still remember the first time my parents took me to Raging Waters in San Dimas. And I remember, you know, splashing around the kiddie pool and the wave pool, which is still disgusting and gross to me, but that's how it was back then. And then I remember looking to the side. And as I looked, my eyes see this enormous structure before me. And it was one of these water slides. And this water slide, it looked like the Tower of Babel. It stretched into the heavens. And so here I am having to make a decision. Now, I had gone with all my cousins that time. And my cousins are much more adventurous than I am. I'm kind of the careful, judicious one of the bunch. And so there are, by the, when I saw that, they were already half up that ladder. And at this point, I have a decision to make. And the decision is, do I trust the engineers and the structure enough to actually climb on this, on this water slide? And after much internal debate, actually way too much internal debate for a six-year-old, I decided to climb this, this ladder. So I climbed the ladder, I jumped down, and it was the most terrifyingly amazing experience in my life. Um, because I was so proud of myself, I had actually accomplished something, but accomplishing it meant that I had to trust in a lot of other factors that were outside of my control. But once I was able to do that, then I, I also had to do something, which I actually, which was, I actually had to climb that ladder. Nobody, the engineers weren't going to climb it for me. The, the plastic and the, the structure wasn't going to climb it for me. The water wasn't going to propel me forward. I had to do that. But I had to do it because I was motivated and I trusted enough that at the end, this was going to be a terrifyingly amazing experience. And I think that's how it is with God. So God has this amazing uh, structure out there called the plan of salvation. And you just, it, it's, it's going to be the most terrifyingly amazing journey you take in your life. It's going to give you a new perspective on the way you look at life, on the way you look at relationships, on the way you interact with those whom you love. 
But you actually have to do something. You have to trust that the plan works enough to get up on that ladder. And if you trust in the process enough and you get up on the ladder, amazing things happen. And so I think sometimes uh, we, we forget that we've already, and if you're watching us this morning, at some point, you have slid down that water slide. That's why you're watching. At some point, you have an encounter. You've had an encounter with God. I think the problem is we have really short-term memories, and so we don't remember that we've slid down this water the water slide several times before, and nothing has happened to us. And so we should approach the stairs with joy and with anticipation and with excitement because God hasn't failed us in the past. And I think that's how our, how our relationship changes a bit. I think being intentional about remembering all these times that you've slid down this water, water slide and it's been terrifyingly amazing, I think is very helpful as you try to navigate the challenges that you have today vis-a-vis -vis your faith. Yeah, that's a, a great analogy. Yeah, it's like because I, I think a, a, another thing that's been very helpful to me is this concept that God, God never asks us to do anything mm -hmm. that we're not capable, whether it's through Him or something. Also, another thing that's helpful that God doesn't do anything for us that we can do for ourselves, mm -hmm. and I think both sides of that's really important because when you think about that. There are circumstances if if you feel like maybe God isn't intervening, maybe saying to you, you, you can do this. Now, I'm not trying to make a statement where you're doing it on your own and right. all that kind of stuff. But but part of the process, what I, what I love about understanding with God is, especially as a parent, we, we say this so many times. If I told my kids every day what to do when they when I wasn't around, they'd be kind of helpless because like, well, there's no one around to tell me what to do. We actually want to create circumstances where they're figuring out how to make decisions for themselves. And, and I think this is such a profound thing with God in that he's really, instead of trying to focus on the kind of miracle our way mm -hmm. through life, where boom, all of a sudden this magical thing happens, and then this magical, kind of a Santa Claus thing, that there's more of a, we want you to navigate on your own so you can have the richness that you climbed up the yeah. ladder yeah. And you slid down the water, whereas it would have been a different experience where someone just picked you up and put you up there. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe there was an age where you weren't old enough to do that. Fine. But at some point, because I, I remember, you know, I'm sure your kids have done this. All of a sudden there's this moment, look, daddy, I did it. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain confidence mm -hmm. and a healthy identity that's built because we were, were part of the process. As opposed to God just saying, okay, Miguel, do do this. Yeah. Okay, you did that right. Check. Yeah. All right. Okay, I've given you the deposit, but now I need you to do this. Yeah, yeah. Go to the grocery shopping. I need <laughs> Oh, you got the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah. I didn't ask you to get the low fat, low sodium. <laughs> There's no point in getting that. <laughs> I have made that mistake with soups quite often. Yes, I do that. The all low the fat, time. low salt, it's like it there's no terrible, flavor. Terrible. <laughs> so um well, one last thing in my mind is thinking in terms of going back to Abraham and Paul. We struggle so much with this um grace and works 
Mm-hmm. Kind of wrap us up a little bit in terms of a way that you kind of, you've kind of already said some things, but kind of summarize how we can kind of harmonize that and just make that more of a transformational thing in our yeah. lives. Um, well, this week was really hot. And um, last Monday, uh, amidst all the hustle and bustle of this graduation season, I decided to take uh, my kids and their cousins to, to the pool in our development. And now that's an adventure. It I'm is, sure it was a bunch of them. It was. It was. I'm never doing that again. Um, but at that moment, I realized that my both of my boys, like we've talked about before, are such different temperaments. So here I had one, and he was still kind of deciding if he wanted to jump in. The other one was already in the water swimming, and um, I'd never seen my youngest be scared of anything. Until I pulled him out of the pool and I said, okay, let's take your life vest off. And he's been practicing swimming. uh, So I said, let's take your life vest off. Jump to dad. Now, I've read that toddlers have completely different depth perceptions than we do. And so he's standing at the edge of this pool stew. And I'm out. I'm there. I must have been like two feet away from him, my hands extended. And I'm telling him, jump. Now, I know I'm going to catch him, and I know that the distance between us isn't that great, and he's not that high above. But because of his toddler depth perception, he felt like he was trying to jump over this chasm, and he was 50 feet up in the air. And so he was tentative. And in the end, I just told him, close your eyes and jump. I'm going to catch you. And he did. And I caught him, and... He did that once, and after that, it was, again, that was a bad idea because that's what we did the whole rest of the afternoon. But I think that's what God is telling us, right? Close your, the works part is close your eyes, jump, and have faith that I'm going to catch you. And have faith that I'm going to catch you because, as you said, what I'm asking you to do isn't impossible, Your depth perception might make it feel like you have to jump off this 50-foot platform with an 80-foot chasm between us. But the reality is I'm right here. I have the true perspective of how life is, and I'm going to catch you. And I think, friends, if if we can do just one thing today as we've talked about work, water slides, and the covenant, just jump. God's going to catch you. Amen. Stu, do you want to close us off in prayer? Absolutely. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for making the deposit, regardless of how we respond. But I pray that we can evermore appreciate what you have done for us and continue to do for us and help us trust in that. And may that be transformational for all of us really experience that connection with you where you want to take us to levels and experiences that we can't even imagine, but we just place it all in your hands, regardless of our current circumstances. We thank you for hearing and answering our prayer in your precious name. Amen. May God richly bless you as you jump into the arms of your loving Savior. Have a happy Sabbath. (music) 